take our text tonight from the second epistle of Peter, beginning at the first chapter, verse 1. Reading from 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We understand from John's gospel that the apostle Peter was originally from a place called Bethsaida. Today there is some debate as to where that place exactly was because it seems that the Sea of Galilee has receded some since Jesus walked the banks. But according to Scripture, we understand it to be on the northern point of the Sea of Galilee, right where the River Jordan flows into the Sea of Galilee. It was not only Peter and Andrew, of course they were brothers who were from this place, but the Bible tells us another disciple, Philip, was from here. And as we read through the Gospels, we find that Jesus was quite active in this area. He performed a lot of miracles, the Bible tells us. Around Bethsaida, there was the feeding of what the Bible refers to as 5,000 men. So with uh, men, women, and children, maybe 15,000. We're not exactly sure uh, how many, but it was quite a multitude. And the Bible tells us that it was with just five loaves and two fish. And after this miracle was completed, it kept going. There were 12 baskets of food left over. Jesus also heals a man of blindness at Bethsaida. You can find that account in Mark chapter 8. And it was around Bethsaida that the Bible tells us that Jesus had gone up to a, a mounted place to get away by himself. He was uh, having his own private prayer service, and the disciples went out on the Sea of Galilee. The Bible tells us that uh, the winds came up and uh, a storm came up, which was known to happen, I understand, on that particular sea. And, and Jesus notices this from the bank. And he sees them struggling out there, and the disciples were worried, no doubt. They were toiling with the wind, the Bible talks about, and Jesus begins to walk out on the water to them. And the disciples, they see the Lord coming, and they think, is this a spirit, or is this a ghost? And Jesus continues, and it actually says that the Lord walks all the way out to the boat and gets right in with them, and the storm ceases. We do know that Peter and Andrew later lived in a place called Capernaum. It makes sense because this was another fishing village. They were fisher, they were fishermen. 
another village on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this was another place where Jesus ultimately performed many mighty works. The Bible talks about him healing the centurion's son. Even Peter's mother-in-law is healed of the Lord at this place. Jesus casts out an unclean spirit here. Jesus raises from the dead Jairus' daughter at this location. And it was here that Jesus calls Simon and Andrew to follow him. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, a familiar passage of Scripture, verse 16. Now, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway, or quickly, they forsook their nets and followed him. It didn't take long for them to make that decision to follow Jesus. Now, Peter's uh, original name here we see was Simon, and in the Hebrew that would have been Simeon. And we know in the Old Testament that's a pretty common name in the Scripture. But Simon, he could not have imagined or comprehended what he was getting into. He quickly made a decision, and he it was a genuine decision to follow Jesus. But what the future would lie ahead for him in his life, he never could have imagined. And that should be how it is with you and me today, you and me today when we choose to follow the Lord. We don't know what lies ahead. We don't know the future. We don't know individually, or we could say as a family unit, or, or as a church. Who could have predicted some of the things that happened over the last couple of years? And who could have predicted some of the social and societal challenges that our young people face today that we didn't experience 20 years ago? We don't know what the future holds. But we don't know what kind of adventures the Lord would like to take us on in our walk with Him. We don't know about the trials and tribulations that will come that Peter writes about. The test of our faith that no doubt will come. What lies tomorrow, next week, next month, next year? Only the Lord the Lord knows. But we know we can hang on, and as we've heard recently, we can stick with it. It's later in this very chapter of our text that Peter writes about the types of Christian virtues that we are to have, such as having faith and knowledge and temperance, and godliness, which is to be like God, and others. And he concludes that list by saying, Wherefore the rather, brethren, this is verse 10 of Second Peter chapter 1, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. It sounds like a walk of victory. It sounds like uh, we can all make it. It sounds like Jesus can keep us. But where did Simon come from? In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus is asking his followers, Who am I? Whom do men say that I am? And and who do you say that I am? Well, Simon speaks up. He was often the spokesman for the twelve disciples in Matthew's account, chapter 16, verse 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's at this time that Jesus gives Simon this new name, or some refer to it as a new title. 
Verse 17, and Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto you that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the name Peter, or the title Peter, we know does mean stone or rock. And in six places in the New Testament, it's described as Cephas which is the Aramaic version of Peter. And Peter, as he grows in his walk with the Lord, becomes one of the Lord's inner circle. James and John, they were at the Mount of Transfiguration, a very special time where they see a glorified Lord Jesus Christ. They were with the Lord at the Garden of Gethsemane, at the most private spot, praying near the Lord, when he was about to face his darkest hour. We know that Peter's father's name was Jonah. We know very little about him. And the Bible indicates that Peter was married. It appears, according to 1 Corinthians, that his wife traveled with him for a time on their missionary journeys, of course. Tradition says that both Peter and his wife ultimately gave their lives for Christ. Second Peter was written near the end of his life. It's likely that Paul had already been martyred for the Lord. Peter even refers to Paul's epistles in the third chapter of this letter, verses 15 through 16. He endorses them as scripture. He talks about that uh, they're being um, sent about the churches or they're in circulation. So it's believed that maybe all of them were in circulation by this time. But if we look again back at verse 1 of chapter 1, Again, as I read, it says Simon Peter. Some think that Simon sort of refers to before he was saved and um, Peter after he was saved, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith. And this we believe and know to be a general epistle. So it's written to the churches then and it's written to you and me tonight. We have received like precious faith. He goes on to say, with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He says grace and peace. And a lot of people would say that grace refers to a Gentile greeting, peace to a a Hebrew greeting, be multiplied, or a bundle, abounding, or a multitude unto you through the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus, and Jesus our Lord. Verse 3. According as his divine power hath given unto all things that pertain unto life, our physical beings, our spiritual beings are all in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all made possible by the divine power of God and godliness, the spiritual, through the knowledge of him who hath called us to glory, which is honor, praise and worship and virtue, valor or spiritual excellence. In verse 4, he says, whereby, or because of this, or through this, through what? Through God's divine power, are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Wow. He uses this phrase, exceeding great. And I believe he's trying to explain how immense or how exceptional, superior, the height and the depth of the promises of God for you and me. The meaning here literally means greatest. 
like there is no greater. The absolute greatest. There is no greater known to humanity. One writer put it this way. They are, God's promises, far beyond magnificent. The Greek root, meaning the phrase, provides the English prefix mega, such as mega bomb or mega star. This really doesn't do it justice. But I think in the English it helps us get there. There are no greater promises in existence to humanity than the promises of God himself to you and me. There are no greater promises known to all of creation than what God has promised you and what he has promises, promised me, the promises of God. And as I thought about this simple word exceeding, or we might say exceeding great in the scripture, I wondered where else in the Bible it's used. And after all, the Bible interprets the Bible and it. I found that Paul uses it a few times in writing to Ephesus, Ephesians 1.19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? So here he uses it to explain God's power. And we know there is no greater power than the power of God. Ephesians 2.7. He says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness to us through Jesus Christ. He's explaining the greatness and magnitude of the grace and kindness of Jesus Christ. And there is no greater grace. There is no greater kindness than that of Jesus Christ. And finally, in Ephesians 3, chapter, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 20, a familiar scripture. He says, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. He's explaining here that God can and will overwhelmingly exceed our expectations. Exceed what we ask. Exceed what we would comprehend that the Lord could do for us. And I wonder when we come to church, what do we expect? Sometimes I think we believe that a spark can come and will come. A stirring, sometimes it's referred to. But I think a lot of times we might think, oh, it's going to come at special meetings, or it's going to come at camp meeting, or it's going to come at some point in the future. So maybe sometimes we come to church because it's the thing to do. We, we want to be in God's house, and, and we do. We come to church and, and with not a whole lot in terms of expectations from the Lord. But what Paul is referring to here is that whatever our expectations may be, we have low expectations, we have high expectations, we have the greatest of expectations. God can completely overwhelm our expectations, what what he can do in a service like tonight. Beyond our imaginations on what the Lord wants to do and can do in our lives as individuals. We go to a restaurant with expectations. I know of one that every time we go, we remember why we don't go there. Our expectations are never met. No matter what, the wait is always terrible. Often the food comes out cold. It's very underwhelming. And then several months go by. We still have that bitter taste 
in our minds, we might say, for some reason we went back and it happens all over again. But how about the places where you go where your expectations are exceeded every time? And so when they're exceeded, then your expectations start to get a little bit higher. And the next time you go, they're exceeded and your expectations get a little bit higher. You want to go back. You know, when God starts to move, our expectations from service to service starts to build. We start to to come into a service and it's more than just a church service. And a church service is great, but we come into an altar service where we want to see God's spirit fall, where we want to see waves of the glory of God. We want to see victories happen. A spirit of expectation begins to be the norm from service to service, from meeting to meeting. This builds our faith. Everything else becomes less important. Our jobs become less important. Everything else is remedial, relative. I want to be there. I want to be in church. I have an expectation that God's going to work. Who's going to receive from the Lord tonight? What is the Lord going to do tonight? How is God going to move? We want to feel and experience the moving of God. And how and why is this all possible? Because God himself has given us exceeding great and precious promises. God has promised salvation. God has promised you deliverance from your sins. God has promised restoration if you're in a backslidden condition. God has promised that he will hear and he will answer your prayer. God has promised that he will complete that which he started in your life, in your Christian walk. God has promised a way of victory. God has promised you peace and joy. God has promised all of us a lively hope. God has promised that his promises will not fail. God has promised that he will fight our battles for us. God has promised us that he will never leave us or forsake us. He'll take us right by the hand. God has promised strength and energy when we're tired and we're weary and we feel like it's difficult to put one step in in front of another. God has uh, promised supernatural strength in those times. God has promised wisdom and knowledge to those that ask. That's what the Bible says. God has promised the Holy Spirit to those that ask. God has promised to be faithful to us. God has promised an abundant life in Jesus Christ. God has promised that he has a plan for your life and for my life. Every individual, God has promised that he has a plan for each one of us. God has promised this everlasting life. God has promised the soon return of Jesus Christ. God has promised a coming kingdom on this earth, a literal coming kingdom on this earth. And God has promised you and me a paradise, a mansion, a specific home for you and me to live forever in. God has promised us a new heaven and a new earth. The promises of God have no end. They are, as Peter wrote, exceeding great and precious. And that word precious, we could say, means priceless. In 1 Peter 1, verse 7, he says, At the trial of your faith, these are the other two locations he uses this word precious, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, 
the trial that we go through, the difficulty that we go to, he said, is much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. But here's the key, First Peter 1, 19, but with the precious blood of Christ. The other location where Peter uses that word precious. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot. It's the blood of Jesus that makes it possible. It's the blood, the precious blood of Christ that makes the promises exceeding great and precious. What do you need from the Lord tonight? Have you experienced the blood of Christ over your heart? Maybe many years ago you did. And God keeps us in how precious of a testimony we heard tonight of the keeping hand of God. But if you need another dip in the blood of Jesus, the Lord sent his son. And we say it often, but the blood of Christ avails. The blood of Christ avails to forgive your sins. The blood of Christ avails to sanctify you. The blood of Christ avails to heal your bodies because of the stripes that Jesus Christ took upon his back. Victory can be yours tonight. Salvation can be yours tonight. We're going to have an opportunity to pray. We want to encourage you. Take advantage of the promises of God. Take advantage of what God promised he will do for you in your life. The song is 166. Let's come out and pray.